Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. If I sound a little different right now, it's because I'm recording this intro on my iPhone. My little handheld recorder has suddenly gone kaput. So if you are a listener out there who uh, has an extra recorder that you'd like to donate or possibly sell at a discounted rate, I'm buying. But anyways, today we are talking to Meredith Rose, senior policy expert at Public Knowledge. They recently released a white paper called Streaming in the Dark, where music listeners' money goes and doesn't. It got a lot of press in the music outlets, media outlets, and of course it covers a topic in which we discuss a lot and are very interested in, and so we contacted Meredith and she was kind enough to come on the show. Before we get to the interview though, a friendly reminder, rate and review us, follow us on all the socials, and please sign up for our newsletter. Okay, here's the interview. Enjoy. with i guess um i really love the framing of this paper um which which as far as i read it right is kind of like (laughs) music is as profitable as ever and yet no one knows (laughs) where the money goes at all and so to kind of like i thought i thought like that whole bundle of questions is like exemplified in something that that I I guess I had never really really under really thought of, which is that no artist understands how they get paid by streaming. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I part of the reason for writing this paper was you know I worked pretty extensively on the Music Modernization Act back when it was being passed in 2018. Um, which is, you know, this, obviously this huge bill about dealt with all kinds of parts of the music industry. And we were really focusing on um, public domain and older sound recordings. Uh, but this question kept coming up about, well, artists aren't seeing any money from this. You know, they're getting fractions of pennies per stream. You know, where is all this money going? And we kept running into this problem of, well, I can't tell you, I can't tell you non-disclosure agreements. We can't actually say. Um, And so eventually, uh, you know, I sat down to just try to figure out, okay, we know how much money is going into this ecosystem. It's about $12 billion, uh, I believe, for 2021 were the most uh, recent figures available when I started writing this. Uh, And we don't have any real idea of how much of it is going out other than a sense that there's really not much of it getting out the other side. So where is it all getting siphoned off to? Um, and that was the thing that we kept running up against. Um, actually, I owe a huge uh, debt of gratitude to a group called the Music Managers Forum, uh, which they're primarily in the UK, but they also have a, a, a US wing. And they put out a report every couple of years called Dissecting the Digital Dollar, 
uh, and it talks about it, it's, it's basically the way they do it is they have these sort of roundtable convenings of music managers who talk about what are their concerns, what are they seeing in the industry, um, and it's a fascinating look at the you know the folks who work directly with artists but are also their interface with the business side of things. Um, and they kept raising concerns about things like transparency and secrecy and, uh, you know, kickbacks and this concern that while these deals are being deliberately structured, maybe in such a way that, uh, you know, the major labels don't have to pass any of the value of them down. Um, you know, and it just became this enormous rabbit hole of we don't have a lot of hard public data about this, which drives policy people absolutely bananas because um, how are we supposed to make good policy about this unless we have information? Uh, and it drives reporters bananas because how are they supposed to report on this without public figures? Um, and that just basically became like the thesis of the paper at, at the end of the day. You know, part of it was just describing. I apologize. That was my uh, that was my calendar going absolutely nuts at me. Um, but yeah, so how do we uh, how do we deal with this? Um, and the short answer, you know, I mean, we've got thoughts about how, how I think it should be solved. Um, but really this problem of like, really nobody knows. And the fact that nobody knows is a problem in and of itself ended up being like, the sort of the major thrust of the whole, the whole study. Yeah. And, and I thought that was tremendously useful. I mean, you call it, you refer to it as the, the, the veil of NDAs, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and what was so great, I thought was not just did you like refer to it in this kind of like blanket way, like all the ways we don't know, you actually broke it up into like, (laughs) and there's this relationship and we don't know that. And there's that relationship and we don't know that. So I thought maybe to, you know, if you could tell us a little bit more about like that veil of NDAs, where it exists and who, who constructs it. And and maybe a little bit of like, like how. Sure. Um, so it really exists up and down the chain is the problem. Uh, there are, uh, you know, often NDAs on just artist contracts with their labels uh, so that they're not in a position to be able to compare notes with other artists uh, or their managers aren't in a position to compare notes with other managers about what their compensation looks like. Um, and so occasionally when they're leaked, uh, the details are pretty egregious. So I think we cited in there um, the Lady Gaga contract with Interscope, which I think was also leaked in 2017. It was a good year for leaks. Um which just which basically showed that she had made absolutely zero dollars off of streaming uh, from her work because of a clause in her contract that Interscope said, well, if we if we license just your work, then we can directly trace our income to your work and we will pass along the value of that. But if we license our entire catalog, you, you're not going to see a dime from that. We owe you nothing. And so what does Interscope do? They go and they license their entire catalog. Wait, so as a, as a lump sum. So this whole argument, like in the case of Interscope, is just, sorry, to just like dial down mm-hmm. in on this to give sure. folks a sense of how both egregious, but also like fragmented this landscape is. Mm-hmm. So Interscope does a bulk deal with uh, the, the, the streaming services. And so the kind of the whole fight about like, should they should artists get a penny a stream should artists not get a penny a stream that doesn't even apply given the very specific ways that let's you know i i'd imagine it's spotify but i don't know you know is paying interscope like a yearly sum or something like that yeah it doesn't matter because interscope negotiated its way out of that 
I mean, they knew very well, if you're dealing with a streaming service, your biggest offer to them is going to be a bulk deal of some kind. If I'm a streaming service, if I am a streaming service, I don't want to license things piecemeal. I want to get the buffet, especially for a service like Spotify, where their entire offering is this broad catalog. Um, and Interscope said, well, you know, if we decide that we're going to license our entire catalog at once, we're not going to owe you anything. And that was a deliberate choice on their part. Um, so that's sort of one layer of NDAs. Uh, then there's the NDAs around the deals struck between distributors and streaming services. Um, you know, and distributors are not necessarily just the record labels themselves. So, you know, distributors, and this is, I apologize, anyone working in or adjacent to the industry, what I'm about to say is going to be very old news. <laughs> um, but for those of us on the outside of the industry, you know, distributors are basically the sort of intermediary layer where they can take catalogs and bundle them together. So they're really valuable for like independent record labels um, because an indie record label may not have enough leverage to approach a Spotify or an Apple Music and say, here's my catalog. What will you offer me for it? They're going to get a much better deal if they're able to bundle together with a bunch of other different labels. Um, and then they'll be able to negotiate for better deals, you know, whatever those deals may look like. Um, so distributors basically... They do a lot of things, but one of the things that they will do is they'll bundle the catalogs and then they'll often serve as negotiators and then they will handle the distribution of the royalties from those agreements. Um, now, there's lots of different distributors, but notably, um, the big three record labels, so Sony, Universal, and Warner, all have their own in-house distributors, obviously, which represent their own catalogs, but they also provide third-party distribution services to independent labels. Uh, and so if you're an independent label it starts to look very attractive to say like, well, I know Sony's going to get a, probably going to get a pretty good deal. So maybe I should just piggyback on them uh, and use one of their distributors who will negotiate better rates for me. Um, but in that case, the deal between the distributor and the streaming service, whatever that deal is, whatever it looks like when it's struck is under a non-disclosure agreement, um, which is so strict to the point that, uh, Apparently, I found this out reading reading the um, the music managers forum work, is that in some of the major record labels, fewer than half a dozen people are even allowed to set eyes upon the deal. Like that's how that's how cloistered these deals are and how closely they're held. Um, so the labels that have signed up with this distributor don't know what they're owed. Um, all they can do is sort of piggyback on it, wait for a check, and then after the fact decide whether it was worth it or not. And it's really that layer of deal between the distributors and the streaming service that is the, first off, it's the one where the fewest people know what those look like. Um, it's also the most important deal as to how artists actually get paid and where consumers' money goes. And those are the ones that we know the least about. Uh, and so that's, that is really sort of the pain point. At least, you know, I argue that that's really the pain point that we need to get more eyes on. Um, and there's a sort of a complicated economic theory about how these negotiations happen and what gets traded away and how much cash and how much non-cash um, that we've created this very um, perverse set of incentives so that the people whose interests should be central to this negotiation, which are the interests of artists and the interests of the paying consumers, are the two interests who have absolutely no representation at that table. Um, and instead, you have these two parties, the streaming service and the distributor, who have very different incentives, and they're the ones who are determining where all of the money is going to go from here on out. 
And 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 just to to be clear, and maybe one of the funny things about these relationships, um, and I think that this is maybe a little bit, um, it's not intuitive, I think, to folks who feel like you know, maybe rightly, like oh, there's so much copyright law, <laughs> um, there's so much royalty law, and in my sense is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in some ways, unlike, for instance the structures of payout that go through um, the the songwriting, the, the set of the bundle of royalties related to song copyright IP, right? That go through publishers, that go through the performing rights organizations, um, so that's ASCAP and BMI for those keeping score at home and, and a couple others, um, which all have like relatively established payout structures that were written to law in the early 20th century when sheet music was the name of the game, um, that recordings and the rights around recordings are much more structured by kind of like bit, bit, a set of business contracts and often mm-hmm. like the the ways in which in a classic label agreement, which also were based on periods of time when they owned studios and no one else did, um, that a lot of these labels are, have rights to the music and the distributors many of whom, as you point out, are the biggest labels. Um, it, it just creates this kind of almost like Russian nesting doll of black boxes where any kind of mandatory payout doesn't even begin, doesn't even begin to penetrate. Right. I think that's totally right. Um, you know, and it's, it's the statistic and I always want to throw this out because this is the one that really sort of blew my mind is that economists and antitrust folks, and, you know, this is a world in which I am sort of adjacent, um, are very, one of the sort of hobbies of antitrust uh, folks and economists is debating, how do you slice up the market? How do you determine, we're talking about market share. What does that mean? Are we talking about percent of revenues? Are we talking about number of subscribers? Are we talking about, you know, and on and on. Um, And one of the numbers that I think was kind of really shocking is that we all know that I think it's in terms of global revenue. Um, the big three combined control something like seventy percent of global revenue, which is a which is a shockingly large number in and of itself. Um, the more shocking number is if you drill down into the distributors uh, that they run. So the distributors they either directly control or are sort of under their umbrella of the digital music licensing revenues. 85% of those travel through the big three, either directly or through one of their distributor arms, which is, a, that's, an, that's an incredible choke point. Um, but part of this is, you know, as you mentioned, the, the, what the law calls the musical works, like the composition songwriter side of the equation, um, is much more of a known quantity. And that's because it's been around longer as an industry, uh, you know, really took off in the, the, very early part of the 20th century. And there's a, a really interesting historical story to tell there. Um, you know, and when I when I give guest lectures to law students about music copyright, I always try to tell it from a historical perspective because frankly, that's the only way that our current system makes any sense uh, is if you look at it as a series of things that we have built up in very specific response to specific technologies that were emerging at specific moments in time. Um, that Aeolian company and yep. their chicanery. <laughs> <laughs> player pianos. It's all player pianos at the end of the day. Um, but really, you know, the, the music publishing industry came of age and became a powerful economic force 
at a time when the the U.S. government was very much on the antitrust train. Um, they were not afraid to exercise their power, uh, and they did it. Some some would say occasionally with wild abandon, um, but there was this idea of oh, there's bad behavior, and we're going to do something about it. Um, and conversely, you have uh, the recording industry, which you know sort of came up around the mid part of the century, but it really didn't get the the turbo juice, uh, which was copyright protection for sound recordings. That didn't happen until the 1970s, at which point it was a relatively short ride until you get into the Reagan era and the sort of general deregulatory push and this aversion, uh, in many cases, to antitrust enforcement. So you have these two, these two sort of um, sibling industries, and to watch them um, nowadays in fights around music licensing, because you have the publishers are, are constantly engaged in this sort of regulatory apparatus around um, setting rates. There's a court within the copyright office that gets to set the rates for certain kinds of uh, streaming as as payable to publishers and songwriters. And they will constantly come out and say, well, you know, the record labels get to do whatever they want. Uh, we should be allowed to do whatever we want because we're getting paid pennies on the dollar compared to them. And that last part is true. Like, songwriters are, in fact, being paid pennies on the dollar compared to labels. Um, but the reason that that is happening is because antitrust enforcement actually came down um, on the abuses of the sort of songwriting publisher side, and it never really meaningfully came down on the abuses on the record label side. Um, you know, so my response is usually, all right, well, so we should just maybe take the fight over to the record label side. Maybe we should drag them over to sort of closer to where the publishers are rather than the other way around. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very interesting um I don't think anybody in their right mind would design the system that we have currently from the ground up. Uh, it just, <laughs> no, nobody is happy with it. Um, it's arcane. It makes people's eyes glaze over when you try to explain it. Um, but it really is this byproduct of like, you know, in the 1940s, the DOJ was happy to step in, maybe not happy, but they would step in, um, you know, and bring an antitrust suit and enforce consent decrees. Uh, and uh, from the 1970s onward, not, not quite as much. Yeah, it's also interesting. I mean, this is maybe a, a side passage, but I mean, just in terms of that that characterization of the various relationships to legal regimes changing over the 20th century. I mean, it's interesting that like almost in that like very law and order imagination um versus an antitrust imagination of like what the law is for. When the record industry gets nailed, it's like racketeering stuff. It's it's related to payola, <laughs> right? Right. So they're like, exactly. You can't do certain kinds of crimes, but we're not going to regulate you. <laughs> well, it's fascinating. So, so uh, I'm gonna. So I, I do want to tell the story of ASCAP and BMI's consent decrees because I think it's a really interesting um, is window into how antitrust authorities and regulatory thought generally would apply to situations like this. So, you know, historically, ASCAP and BMI. ASCAP came first. Uh, ASCAP came up in the um, sort of, I think it was like 1912-ish. And the rationale behind ASCAP, which is it is called a performing rights organization. And the idea behind a performing rights organization is that, um, you know, if I am a songwriter, I, in 1912, don't have any real way of monitoring where my work is being performed. Um, this is obviously very, very, very pre-internet, uh, but this is also, um, you know, there's... I don't know if it's being played in a 
bar here or in an old-timey saloon out in Wyoming or if it's being performed right down the street. I have very little way of knowing. And so ASCAP arose as this way for composers and publishers to kind of band together. They would have agents that would go out into these performing venues um, and they would sit there and they would listen to hear if anybody played a song that was in the ASCAP repertoire. And if they did, the agent would then walk up to the owner uh, and say, hey, by the way, you just committed a copyright violation by publicly performing a work without a license. Here's your bill. Uh, and so to this day, actually, if you go to um, sometimes even coffee shops or gyms, but if you go to venues, sometimes you'll see in the corner of the, the front window, there will be a little sticker saying, like, this is an ASCAP venue. This is a BMI venue. Um, and basically what that means is they've essentially paid insurance, if you ask one set of folks, um, extortion money, if you ask another set of folks. Uh, you know, I think a lot of venue owners very much view this as a, a nice bar that you got there. Shame if something happened to it kind of business model. My, my sense is that then the reason you get the consent decree is as cap starts, the agent starts showing up and saying, you've can you've committed a copyright violation. We don't need to tell you which which copyrights you right. violated. Uh, you should pay X amount of money or else we're going to take you to court. By the way, nice so that- bar you've got there. Yeah, so that was what got that was initially what got the antitrust senses tingling at the DOJ. But what actually led to the consent decree is, is in my mind, way more interesting and way funnier. Um, so ASCAP, uh, this was obviously we didn't have commercial radio in the United States until the 1920s was like the very earliest commercial radio broadcast. Um, and so at the in the beginning of commercial radio, uh, publishers and songwriters sort of treated that as free advertising. Uh, and so they would license to the broadcasters, but it was usually sort of a pittance, like a nominal kind of fee um, that they'd pay for a license to perform this music. And at the time, commercial radio broadcasts were literally, they would have a studio and they would have a live band in the studio performing these songs. Uh, and then commercial radio got bigger and bigger. And uh, the major broadcasting stations, which was CBS and ABC, and I I, might've been NBC. I don't remember exactly what combination of it it was. They had a contract with ASCAP and the rates were expiring and they were set to jump essentially because commercial radio was now big and ASCAP said, that's it. We have, you know, we deserve more money for what's going on. Meanwhile, ASCAP is doing all this other stuff in the background about, well, we're not going to tell you which song is in our repertoire, which ones you violated. Um, Also, they were doing things like not representing black composers uh, or not representing uh, composers for what uh, at the time was called hillbilly music, which is the the precursor to modern country. And so the radio broadcasters were watching this and this was just an epic slap fight between the two of them for several years. And the broadcasters said, you know what, we're going to go make our own performing rights organization. uh, And we're going to, we're going to bring on all of these people that you refuse to represent. So they brought on tons of, of, Black songwriters. They brought on tons of uh, Hispanic songwriters. They brought on Spanish language songwriters. They brought on um, hillbilly songwriters. Just they just hoovered up the remaining market of songwriters who could not get membership in ASCAP. And for an entire year, the major broadcasters didn't play a single ASCAP song. Um, all they would play were their their own uh, PRO, Broadcast Music Inc., uh, which is BMI. And ASCAP was just. You know, they didn't believe this was going to work at first, and then it became apparent it was very much working, and everybody got very and alarmed. Like public domain songs too, right? Mm-hmm. There are all these reports of like 
boy, there's a lot of Yankee Doodle Dandy on the airwaves this this year. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, the DOJ had already been eyeballing ASCAP for some of its bad behavior. Uh, and the broadcasters and BMI went to the DOJ and went, you know, I'm just going to put this out there. We'd be fine with a consent decree um, if you put one on us. I'm just no real reason I'm saying that. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, and so the DOJ went, all right. And they entered into a consent decree with BMI. Uh, and then ASCAP was essentially cornered and was pressured into accepting a consent decree on its own. And if you read the headlines from like broadcast magazine at the time, it's just, it's wild because there are literally headlines that say like ASCAP menace finally defeated. (laughs) It's just, it's over the top. I always imagine it in like an old timey world war two news announcer voice, um, you know, decisive blow in the battle against ASCAP. Uh, but that's where those consent decrees come from. Is it? It's part, and it's a cycle that you see repeated over and over again in copyright law generally, but in music specifically, where you'll have this, uh, you know, incumbent industry, and you'll have some upstart who will come in and you know eat everybody's lunch, and the the slap fights will commence, and then the law, be that through the Department of Justice or through Congress, will have to get involved and sort of rearrange the balance of power. And then before the ink is even dry on that, some new upstart will come in and start eating everybody's lunch all over again. And we just repeat this cycle ad nauseum. And, and, and so that's really interesting because I, I do feel like one of the things that's key to understand kind of jumping forward most of a century is the ways in which that intersector, like inter-industry and almost like intersectoral tensions undergird so much of what's happening now that you do have the record industry it seems like you know some of the reasons that they're willing to you know it's not being done through antitrust but the same kind of like (laughs) mixture between like back room and back alley (laughs) fighting that leads to right. the creation of BMI is also the same, like almost industrial logic that dictates the relationship between the major labels and the digital service providers, the streaming services that we all know and love. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, one of the, the, the trivia facts that every music fan gets to drop at pub trivia is that um, AM FM radio doesn't pay record labels for the songs that they play. And that is a relic of the fact that in the 1970s, when copyright was introduced for sound recordings, and with copyright, the right to get paid for the public performance of the work, um, at that time, radio broadcasters were just an immensely more powerful lobby. Uh, And so there's there's a pure political story there. And so there was no public performance right for sound recordings until you get to 1998 and you get the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. When all of a sudden the record labels were super powerful and it was the new sort of upstart uh, webcasters, they were called at the time. It was the sort of tech companies that were the less powerful people at the table. And so you then you all of a sudden got a digital public performance right. So, you know, the record labels thought, well, we can get one over on the tech crew because they're relatively young and upstarts. But the radio lobby is still too powerful. So we're just going to like get our lunch from over here. Um, and this just like keeps going on and on and on. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's to some extent, I guess this is just sort of the story of copyright writ large over the 20th century, but you're right. It is this combination of, of backroom brawls and then, 
you know, sort of political horse trading that has led to this bizarre sort of ill system that just does not hang together in any kind of cohesive, rational way. I mean, it's really interesting that that description you just gave of, of the ways in which the music industry sought to kind of use its power um, in to kind of uh, uh, set up an advantage and set up and then write into law an advantageous relationship um, with the tech companies because in some ways it runs very counter to I think a general understanding um, certainly one that we've talked about a lot on the show of the relationship between tech and music which is kind of that um, <laughs> the short version um, uh, but uh, um, if there's a, we have an episode called calling bullshit in the Napster narrative where we go into it on like an exhaustive hour and a half. Um, but, but basically <laughs> that um, the tech in that, that, that even if the music industry is making, you know, is as profitable as it was in the non boom, but non crisis era of the late eighties and nineties, there's probably an argument that given how much music there is everywhere, uh, it's, you know, that, that that I couldn't possibly pay for as much music as I have access to on Spotify in 1990, right? It's impossible. Like, I, I just right. wouldn't have access to that much. And given how much music has proliferated, like, you know, there's no clean way to, like, evaluate how much digital music is worth. That's where, like, economics and, like, putting dollar signs on at some level intangible cultural activity breaks down, but there's an argument to be made that right. there's a lot more music circulating. And if anything, the record industry should probably be bigger than it was and more profitable than it was. But a lot of that excess or extra profit got siphoned off by like, I don't know, a company like Apple that sold a ton of, uh, uh, uh God, what are they called? Uh, they're not called IMAX. Oh my god. iPods. There we go. iPods? <laughs> you know, sorry. Let me take that again. A company like Apple that sold a lot of iPods before there was a very easy legal way to like buy music, right? And like every dollar right. spent on an iPod was a dollar that was like in support of set gray market if not illegal music that wasn't going to the major labels. And so it's interesting to think about the current setup as like in some ways like some tech companies eating the music industry's lunch and then the music industry eating the lunch of a small part of the tech industry. The, right. The part exactly. of the tech industry that's small enough for it to like noogie basically. Right. And that's the wild thing is like, and I think this is a good, good way of thinking about it, that there are two categories of streaming service, which I think this tends to get lost in the conversation. Um, we talk about Spotify a lot because Spotify is by almost any metric, just the biggest of the streamers by a country mile um, in terms of subscribers, in terms of, you know, revenue directly attributable streaming, pick, pick your poison. Um, so there's, there's independent streamers like Spotify. Spotify is not backed by anything except for um, <laughs> occasionally on the tech back end, like, you know, duct tape, shoestring and a prayer. Um, but they're not attached to a larger company. And then you have the cross-subsidized streaming services, the Apples, the Apple Music, the Amazon Music, the YouTube Music of the world. Um, and those are all backed by 
you know, some of the largest companies in the history of capitalism uh, are, are just pouring money into these companies. Uh, and they can continue to pour money into these companies because if you're Amazon, you have a Scrooge McDuck pool of gold coins that you can swim around in. And uh, it doesn't matter how much money you're losing on your streaming service because you can just keep pouring more money into it. Um, and your streaming service is valuable to you not as a profit maker, but as a loss leader to pull people into your ecosystem. Um, you know, it might be a point, it might be the tipping point that convinces somebody to get an Amazon Prime subscription. It might be that, you know, it's, well, it's easier to call uh, Amazon Music through my smart home Alexa device. Um, and so that's where the value is. And so you have the system where right now, um, I think the intuitive response when we hear, uh, you know, stories about artists making just like offensively small amounts of money off of a stream, I think the first impulse that people have is, uh, well, make make the streaming companies pay more. And I don't think that's a, a bad or even necessarily an incorrect impulse, but I think what it misses is that right now it is impossible, it is structurally impossible to turn a yearly profit as an independent streaming service that is not backed by a major tech conglomerate. Um, because if any money has been left on the table in a negotiation between, say, Spotify and the major labels, then that means the major labels have, have messed something up in their <laughs> negotiations. Something has gone very wrong if there's a penny on that table at the end of the day. Um, and Spotify's only turned a profit, I think it was 2018, and then again in 2019, like two non-consecutive quarters, and then they just like haven't managed it again since. Um, and that's because structurally, you know, record labels can, are what economists call price setters. They basically get to say, well, there's no perfect substitute for this good that I offer. I am the only one who can offer you these very high demand goods. Ergo, I get to determine what the price is. Um, and so whenever we say, well, you know, uh, Spotify needs to pay more, well, that's fine. But the question is, like, where is that going to come from? Because everything that they've got is already pretty much uniformly going out into payments through these the, the majors. Um, the major record deals. Uh, and so we're creating a system where it's perilously close to impossible for anyone other than a major tech conglomerate about whom we have lots of other concerns, very serious among multiple axes. Um, and I'm not sure that we want a world where those are the only people who can afford to run a streaming service. And so the question is like, how do we, how do we prevent that from happening? Um, and, you know, the major labels have historically been very clear about the fact that um, if you go all the way back to the first, uh, I think it was the first webcasting rate setting uh, proceeding that went on about, this is all the way back in the days of webcasting was literally like if you had a local radio station that was concurrently broadcasting a stream of its feed over the internet, um, what kind of money did they have to pay? And, uh, you know, representatives for the labels sort of went on record saying like, look, we would prefer a universe where there are fewer streamers that are bigger and have deeper pockets rather than having this sort of proliferation of small independent competitive streamers. Um, because we don't think we're going to be able to be fairly compensated by, you know, a hundred small guys. Um, but we think we're more likely to be fairly compensated if we have like three really big guys with deep pockets. Um, and so that's been the pressure on the market ever since has been like pushing and pushing and pushing towards having fewer and fewer players with deeper pockets. And unfortunately, we're hitting the point where the only people with deep enough pockets are turning out to be like the Amazons of the world, um, you know, rather than any kind of independent effort. And, you know, God bless uh, Deezer for, <laughs> for holding in there. 
Um, but you know, those are those are a rarity. Um, there are not that many of them, and that's a structural problem. Or maybe it's a feature if you're a record label. I think it's a bug, but you know, some people may argue that's a feature, and that's a thing we can debate. Yeah, I mean, that is something interesting that we kind of brought up in our last episode, where it's like, how do I put this? Like, f Spotify, like folded. It, or like you know, if the if the streaming payout system uh, changed as like Lucian Grange has been like kind of making hints at or wanting, like would the would the big three be happy like maintaining the streaming uh, with like these massive tech companies or would they would they you know I don't know like what what would I'm curious like what they're what they're thinking around around like the the changing of payouts and like you know I feel like they have no problem with like Spotify dying because these tech companies could just like fill that void. Yeah. I think that's, I, I, again, we sort of don't really know uh, firsthand what they're thinking, but I think it's, it's reasonable enough to uh, extrapolate that. Yeah. If you know, Apple music would still be there. Um, YouTube music would still be there for all their contentious relationship with, uh, you know, broader YouTube. Um, Amazon music would still be there. Uh, so, you know, the question is like, how much, how much do they care if Spotify goes under? Well, they care a little bit cause they have equity stakes. Um, and they care, they would care a little bit cause this is a, uh, you know, has the most subscribers, reaches the most ears. Um, and the other important thing is, you know, Spotify has, Spotify has a freemium, uh, option, which not every streaming service does. Um, and there's a pretty heated debate about the ethics of even having a freemium service. Um, and, you know, I think those those debates are lively for a reason, which is because people, you know, people have very strong considered opinions on both sides. But at the end of the day, Spotify's freemium service is a hugely valuable, if nothing else, A, because, it, you know, you get a hold of listener data, which, you know, data is worth money. Um, and B, as just piracy diversion, because there is a segment of the population. And I think in in policy around copyright law, a lot of content industries like to pretend that this segment of the population doesn't exist, but it does, um, for which the ideal price point is always going to be zero dollars. Uh, there is, there is no, no universe in which they're going to pay for the content. And so the question is, how much, do you, how much do you want to tweak the system knowing that if you remove the ability to legally get zero dollar content and, you know, get some admittedly perhaps offensively small payout for that zero dollar content um that's still better than having them go to the pirate bay uh and that's that's an equation which is uh hotly debated um because it's also the core question around every kind of new online uh copyright law or online facing copyright law it's a quote-unquote fight piracy is okay we're imposing systemic costs across the entire internet for what kind of gain, like how much are we actually tamping down on that number of, of pirates? Uh, is this a meaningful enough number that it's worth the trade-off? Um, and I spend a lot of my days yelling about this question, uh, even outside of music. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it's, you know, I think you're right. I think right now, if you're a record label, especially if you're one of the big three, you've got the pick of the litter. If you, you know, if you want to knock Spotify out of the running tomorrow, you'll lose some stuff. I'm not going to pretend that, that it wouldn't, ding your business model um but you still got three very large pretty competitive streaming options to pay to pay you and they've got much deeper pockets so you know take your pick yeah and ironically also that freemium that freemium model is also like one of the few advantages that spotify has against like the apple musics of the world yeah exactly i mean the the point about deep pockets is really really interesting because it it it, it um i mean 
sorry, let me take that again. That point about deep pockets is really important, I think. And, and, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about precisely why the music industry would rather deal with a couple of players with really deep pockets rather than a whole host of smaller smaller companies and and i think that you, you do a really good job of gesturing in this report to um the kinds of uh uh i would say like friends with benefits <laughs> arrangements that the record labels are able to extract from a company like spotify um or apple music or youtube that there's all kinds of interesting like not off the books but like not exactly on the books types of interactions that um, that it, that if I'm reading it right, it's like kind of power that market preference for them. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things we talk about, if you're Spotify, you're not turning profits with anything, you know, maybe when Mercury's in retrograde, you'll turn a profit, but it's not a regular thing and it's not anything you can usually bank on. Um, and so if you've got a universal music group or a Sony or a Warner approaching you, um, you are light on pocket cash. Uh, you are comparatively relatively, you know, you, you're not exactly getting a moth flying out when you open your wallet, but you're, you're not too far off from it. Um, and so when they when they approach you and want to cut a deal, the incentive, if you're a, a relatively cash-strapped organization like Spotify, uh, I don't know if I'd call them cash-strapped. Anyway, if you, are, if you are an independent streamer like Spotify and you do not have a Scrooge McDuck pool of money, um, you are going to start looking at other things you can offer that are valuable um, to, you know, sort of offset the cash costs. Say, well, you know, I can only pay you X in cash, but uh, I've got things like in-house playlists uh, that we generate that are actually pretty popular. Um, I could give you some some primo placement on those playlists. We have a, a recommendation algorithm that generates a lot and drives a lot of traffic to artists. We could juice your results uh, in the recommendation algorithm. We could do uh, discounted advertising deals, which is something that you know was in the Sony contract from 2017. They got basically a bulk package of discounted advertisements that they can then turn around and sell on to other advertisers. Um, so there's all these kinds of things going on in the background, and you know the idea is if you're Spotify, offering these is great because that offsets your cash cost. Uh, now, if you're a record label. This is great for a very different set of reasons, and you would prefer this, which is because generally, um, if it's not cash, you don't have to pass it along per the terms of your contract with your artists. So if it's not cash, you get to pocket the value of it. Uh, and so you've got, again, you have these two sides with very different incentives. Uh, if you're an artist at the table, you're going to say, no, I want, I want the payment to be in something that can come to me. Um, because it is, you know, it is my music that is up there. I deserve to be paid. Uh, and if you're a consumer at the table, you'd say like, no, it, sh it should go to the artist. Like I'm listening to nothing but Godspeed, you black emperor on loop. Uh, I would like them to get my money, please. And thank you. Um, but if you're, if you're the streaming service and you're the record labels, you've got a very different set of incentives. And for the, the streaming service, it's to minimize your cash payout. And if you're a record label, it's to arguably, in a lot of cases, minimize your cash intake um, because you can pocket a lot of value that's not in cash. Uh, and so it's sort of these black box deals um, about how, who is getting the value of that? Who is it getting passed along to? Um, and this is the, this is the perverse set of incentives. And this is just, the basic economics of how 
music works and how it is valued and the ability of labels to be price setters. Um, and, and this is the, letting it continue is, is really a policy choice. Um, at the end of the day, you know, there are tools that we have to address this. Um, we had payola in the radio, uh, industry and that blew up in the 19, uh, I think the early 1960s, late 1950s. Um, it was not a new project at the time that had been going on for a long time, but when it sort of came out into public view, I think people were rightly very upset about exactly this kind of exchange of value um, going on behind the scenes. And the FCC ultimately was the one who came out and said, well, this is broadcast radio, so we have jurisdiction. And we're going to say that this is unfair competition, uh, and you may not accept cars, you may not accept cash uh, in exchange for spinning records from one company more than another. Uh, and I think people are shocked when they hear that, like, that only applies to broadcast radio, those rules, um, and they don't apply to streaming. And in streaming, it, we actually have this sort of bizarro situation where the, the value transfer is coming in a lot of cases from the streaming services in exchange for a discount. So it's this sort of weird, I've, I've seen one researcher characterize it as reverse payola. Yeah, um, that's that's what I was going to say. It's, I mean, yeah. in some ways it feels like an anti-monopolistic, a, a classic, sorry, a classic example of monopoly, right? Like when there were a lot of record companies, they paid the radio stations. Now there's three and the digital equivalent of the radio stations pay them. <laughs> that's a, Yeah, it sounds like a Jakob Smirnov joke. Like, you know, in Soviet Russia, uh, <laughs> FM radio pays you. Um <laughs> But yeah, it, I mean, it's, it is kind of crazy. Um, and there's other kinds of this stuff, too. I mean, uh, we, we talk a little bit about the paper. Um, we talk a little bit about uh, Spotify's discovery mode, which, you know, has tons of ink has been spilled about this. And the idea of Spotify essentially doing a direct distribution deal with an artist, um, but the artist can accept lower rates in exchange for being put into discovery mode and getting more exposure. And, you know, people are saying, well, that's basically payola too. So it's, you know, there's all these kinds of, there's all these concerns floating around. And again, it's, it is nigh impossible for most policymakers to be able to say with certainty, this is what's going on. This is legally how we characterize it because they cannot get eyeballs on the deals. Um, and we're sort of stuck relying on this combination of like statements from people who are directly affected and leaks and things that have been filed in litigation um, and sort of trying to reverse engineer from, you know, a bigger picture from what we can see. Uh, and, you know, I would love, frankly, for uh, a record label to come out and say, you got it all wrong, actually, it's this other way, uh, you know, to which I'd be like, cool, um, can you show any of the documents that actually can we <laughs> can you can you prove this to me um because you're just gonna have to take it on faith is not an answer that should ever be accepted by any policymaker for sure um but it's what they've been stuck working with uh, members of congress you know if they ask questions unless they're willing to you know open a full-on investigation they just kind of have to take it at, at face value from industry folks um, and that's just like bad, that's bad way to make policy. And it's sort of landed us where we are right now. Um, and, you know, I'm a policy wonk. So I, I take the local angle on everything. And I think, well, is there a chance of reform here? How would we do that? Um, and I think there is. And I think there's a, you know, there's several paths forward, but none of which we can really engage on until we get better information. Because this whole, like, you know, just take my word for it isn't going to cut it. 
Yeah, and I mean, especially, like, take my word for it in the context of the record industry. And, and I want to kind of, um, as we wrap up, I'm really interested in, in talking through some of the, the like, uh, grounded policy proposals that you, you put forward at the end of the report. But, like, I do think it's worth just circling back to this absolutely insane fact that really does structure like a, a lot of the conversation around this issue in all, all sorts of ways, which is that, first off, it's the record industry, which is like not the industry that has the best track record of not lying to everyone always, constantly, right? Like <laughs> the history of yeah, the not, record. Not held up as model citizens in a lot of these uh, discussions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're handed out Cadillacs and stealing royalties and, you know, a million, literally millions of, of, of various uh, illegal or semi-legal or, or corrupt activities over that their, their century plus history. And, you know, in relationship to artists, in relationship to radios, all kinds of stuff. And so, like, at the very minimum, just being like, oh, yeah, definitely, we'll trust you because that's never gone wrong. But, but also just it makes... And, and again, like you said, this is a, the main thrust of the report. It makes an informed, intelligent discussion about the impact of the streaming economy on music and musicians impossible because we don't know, like, the basic facts, right? Are musicians making more or less money than they used to be? Full stop, right? In some ways... We can infer sociologically almost, right? A lot of musicians sound like they're struggling. You also have Spotify saying, you know, there's a, I forget how how many right now, but something like 100,000, you know, Spotify artists who make over $10,000 a year, over a certain amount of money a year that we're empowering more artists to make a living. And right, maybe it's totally possible that what you're catching there is, you know, a set of musicians you know maybe like 80s indie rock musicians who were always going to be making less money in the 2020s as their music is not as popular as a new generation of soundcloud rappers and like maybe that's true or maybe that musicians are just not making nearly as much money from spotify from the streaming economy as a whole but as you're putting out like literally we can't know we can't even ask the most basic questions about this industry because because the, the wall of NDAs. Yeah, exactly. You know, and this is this is a um, this is a constant frustration of mine as someone who um, works in the, the sort of music copyright minds uh, all day. Uh, you know, p- people will ask uh, staffers and Congress will ask very straightforward questions about like, well, what is what do these deals look like, or how much you know exactly like you said, are people making are musicians making more or less money than they used to? And I can't. You know, I can say, well, we have kind of an intuitive sense about this, but we just the data just isn't there. Um, you know, and the other the other side effect of this. So I I am a I am a U Chicago alumna twice over. Um, my alma mater is part of the problem here. Uh, sort of over uh, the over importance on dollar figures when we're talking about policy. Um, but the flip side of that is it's economists have not yet been unleashed on this problem because the data is just not there. Um, and so every other, you know, industry, which has been nitpicked to death twice over by economists 
Um, you don't get that with the music industry, like nearly as much, you know, you'll occasionally get an economics report from in-house or from a consultant commissioned by whatever, but you really don't have that kind of academic literature of like, well, where is, where, how, what does this actually look like in dollar figures? Um, so, you know, my, if I can point, if I could point the entire, you know, Chicago School of Economics at this and then just like let them ride, um, mission accomplished for me. What a um, horrifying idea. But, <laughs> you know, I know, you know what? It's uh, sometimes you got to work with the tools you got. Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, sick them. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, so like the thing that we really like landed on in doing the research for this is the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission has this authority under the FTC Act. Um, it's Section 6B. And what Section 6B is, is a provision that allows them to do a bunch of things. Um, the key part of which is they can open an investigation without the intent to prosecute. Um, they can open an investigation into an industry to just say, like, we're not sure what's going on here and we need to know more to make sure there's no funny business. Um, and they can subpoena documents. So pretty much everyone else within the U.S. government who has any kind of policymaking role with regards to the music industry um, like the Copyright Office, for example. Uh, the Copyright Office does lots of studies. The Copyright Office doesn't have the power to demand documents. They can ask nicely, and then they just have to take whatever they're handed and work off of that. And that is not that is not a good way to make policy, um, especially when the problem is all of these NDAs. So the FTC has the ability to legally subpoena documents, and they can keep them under seal. Um, you know, not releasing them to the public, be like, all right, there might be trade secrets in here. Fair enough. Um, they can keep it under seal. They can aggregate these things and do sort of something akin to like, you know, the parliamentary inquiry that happened in the UK, where they look at what's going on. They get eyes on it on, you know, core original sources of these deals. And then they can issue a report. Um, and they can also do other things under 6B authority, like they can mandate what sort of functionally amounts to a standing check-in with the industry every year about like, you have to report X, Y, and Z to us. Um, and if it starts to look like there's too much funny business, then we might do something. Um, but really, like the key power there is the ability to actually subpoena these documents, to get eyes on them, and to be able to, you know, internally within the FTC, they don't have to share them, they don't have to publish these documents everywhere, but just to be able to get eyes on them sit down, kind of assess what is going on, and then turn around and report back to the rest of us um, about what exactly is going on. And it, and it might be that, you know, I, I would find this very surprising if they said it, but there is a universe in which they come out and say, actually, you know, there's no real one problem here. There's just some, some fundamental economic things, and we don't think there's any way to fix them. I would be very surprised if they said that, but that's within the realm of possibility. Um, but really, it's just we've got to have somebody who's able to get eyes on this other than, you know, five people working at Sony music um, <laughs> to be able to say, you know, relatively impartially, we think this is all very bad or we think actually um, it is somewhat less bad or maybe even that we think it's fine. So that's, that's where we, we came down is just saying like, before we do anything else and we think there's a lot of other things that can be done and should be done. Um, we, we've got to start with this study out of the FTC. Can, can I ask a political question about that? Sure. Which is, it seems like some of this inquiry would be made more difficult by the fact that the counterparties to these deals are the most powerful corporations in the world sometimes. Like Spotify, no, but Apple Music and Amazon Music are part of Apple and Amazon. 
and like there's all you know as you said there's multiple axes along which we're concerned about i don't know like non-compete agreements between tech companies this same kind of backroom right. deals and whether that would make this kind of investigation more difficult to do possibly i mean i think it, it really depends on what's in there you know and one of the interesting things is we haven't really seen a response to this report from anybody on either side of it really we've had a lot of like great um response from um artists and artist managers in particular um and we've gotten a lot of like very good feedback from um independent labels uh you know who are really getting squeezed by this on all sides uh major labels and streaming services not so much <laughs> it's been kind of very quiet uh in response to this you know so i think i think you're right in that it is politically complicated because these deals you know we don't know what's in them um, it might be that this would be a can of worms leading to things like, uh, you know, we're relatively sure that like discounted advertising is involved in these. We're relatively, we can say with some degree of confidence that there's at least a high likelihood that like user data um, it, sales to brokers are often going to be part of these, um, you know, and there's already all kinds of, there's a lot of different axes under which many of these companies, especially in the tech side, are already in hot water. Um, or at the very minimum, the subject of very heated debate about practices on these things. And so it might crack open a can of worms and say like, oh, this actually also extends into the streaming space. But again, we don't know. <laughs> so I would I would be very comforted, in fact, by a report coming out of the FTC. It says actually no user data is being sold. I would, I would consider that a win. I would love to be proven wrong. Um, and I would sleep much easier at night uh, if that was the case. But I think that's right. You know, and the FTC also has the complication right now of it is it is pretty politicized in Congress, I think the view of the FTC is very split along party lines. Um, and so it's a little bit of a difficult lift to uh, get buy-in when, you know, fundamentally sort of one half of the aisle looks askance at the FTC just as a general political matter. Um, but no, I think it's, it's, you know, we very much are looking at this, or at least I'm looking at this very much as the opening volley in trying to have these conversations more broadly um, and to really get lawmakers talking to artists and talking to managers and not just, and not just to the artists and managers who the RIAA will fly in, you know, to make their case for them. Um, but to really talk to people who maybe have a different view, like these are groups that are not monolithic in their opinions on these things. Um, but to start having this conversation more broadly to get people to talk to each other rather than in their own silos and try to figure out what do we do next. 